Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's our post-All-Ireland football final, Irish Times second captain's podcast. Ken Murph, how are you? Hello there. Good, Owen. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Although I must say, if we've learned anything from the All-Ireland football finals of the past 20 years, it's that the team who wins it will almost certainly not be able to defend the title the following season. Yeah. So why is it then that I found myself... I found something slightly chilling about Eamon Fitzmaurice's declaration on the Sunday game last night, that his Kerry team is off the mark. You don't say you're off the mark... Unless you think you're going to win a load more yeah, yeah. in the next Off the mark is, what the phrase basically means is, I've gotten that sort of monkey off my back. You know, it's like, it's just kind of a thing that you have to go through before you get down to the business of actually winning. Of actually creating a legacy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's off, getting off the mark is, you've, you know, that that's just an annoyance that you've taken care of and now you can get down to the real bit. Further reasons. But don't worry, it's, it's every second year the carrier are going to win on Ireland, so it's fine, it's no big deal. I have got further reasons to be apprehensive here again. Mm-hmm. But this particular carry team managed to win on the back of zero underage success, no titles for a long time. They now have that success again with the minor victory yesterday. The one team who have successfully defended the All Ireland in the last 20 years or so was Kerry in 2007, 2007, whatever way I want to phrase it. And Tommy Walsh, one of the key men, their last triumph in 09, last reason to be fearful, told us on second captain's championship yesterday that he may well be on the way home from Sydney next year. I'm guessing Tommy Walsh hasn't lost any of his muscles while training as a professional sportsman these last No, he was years. pretty muscly when we sent him over there. And uh, now he's extremely <laughs> muscly. Did you mention the gooch there? Oh, I forgot about the gooch. Yeah, Colin Cooper is going to be back as well. Yeah. Are you worried about Kerry for next year? No, Dublin are still by far the best team. They are the best team, it's, Well, it's pretty obvious, really. I mean, if you, if you look at the games, Dublin had a bad one against Senegal. Um, overall, by far the most impressive team. Uh, the only team, as far as I could see, that was dedicated to attack... To entertainment, to play the game for the people, the people of this great city, and I think it was a pity that um, the way that it went. You know, I think it was a pity that the that great spectacle of an All Ireland final 
uh, turned into this um, neurotic uh, sort of tactical. It was it, it strangled the spectacle. Mm. I felt that sort that sort of uh, two system obsessed teams grinding each other relentlessly, like a couple of um, uh, tractors going head to head. You know, is, is that is that a jibe? Was, was you have a you have a pop there? Well, look, the farming some, communities of Kerry and Donegal. Is that what you did? The best team lost. You're a disgrace, early. You're a disgrace. No, I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't to do with farming. It was just I couldn't think of anything else heavy and industrial. No, I am clanking. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm picturing Jim McGinnis up on one and Eamon Fitzmaurice up on the other. Two of them wearing flat caps. Yeah, I know what you're. I know what you're doing. Right, the pair of you are absolute disgrace. Anthony Moyles and Oshie McConville will be in studio shortly. We may also ask Oshie about an unusual story that he was involved in on Friday night mm. as Cross McLean manager. Not sure everyone's heard of this one. They won a championship game against Drummond T. Nothing unusual so far. No, the very sc- much. The scoreline is a little odd. 1-8 to 0-0. It looks strange, but mm. maybe they just played a blanket defence and hit them on the break. But that was by no means the most remarkable thing about this game. Murph, why did it hit the headlines? Because three of the, at least three of the Drummond T players were in the autumn of the years. Well, late summer anyway, certainly, uh, in their 50s, wearing jeans. Um, and the photographs are quite, they're quite stunning. <laughs> Aaron Kernan, one of the greatest footballers of his generation, marking a man in a club championship game. 50-year-old man. Wearing a pair of jeans. This is senior championship we're talking. Uh, senior championship quarterfinal. Uh, it's a pretty important game. Uh, Armagh clubs have continued to field over the last 20 years, even though none of them have won a county title. Well, one did. Uh, since Crossman decided to take over the the whole show there, um, but this is it is quite strange. I mean, in a week where there was a man up a tree from Donegal looking at Kerry's training sessions, it also included an Iron Final. I mean, it's been an amazing couple of days. Oh, she can explain the context and why these jeans wearing dudes were trying mm-hmm. to b- compete against uh, the greatest club we've ever seen. Time. But I should stress, I hope we can actually broach the subject with him because I texted him, Ken, mm-hmm. on the, I read this 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 hilarious, but I thought it was a hilarious incident that had taken place at a match that he was managing a team in. Texted him, waiting for it. Uh, Ushim Kamal's a very funny man, I find. Um, mm-hmm. And can be very witty uh, via text mm-hmm. and in person. But the text that came back was, well, he was pretty annoyed <laughs> because he is trying to manage a team in a championship and will now have a much harder game in the next, in the next round, in the semi-final. Mm-hmm. And it's coming off the back of playing against a team full of outlads wearing jeans. Yeah. So he wasn't overly impressed. Maybe he'll be in a mood to laugh about it today. We're also going to talk to director Andrew Gallimore. who's a new documentary out telling the story of Irish golf. It details how Ireland essentially it's a petri dish for the sport. There's the history. Scott's brought it here. Geography. Nice coastal country that we have. Natural irrigation. The Gulf Stream avoiding the har- harsh frosts. Mm. Uh, low, Simon gave me that one. He's big into the geography. Low population, beautiful landscapes. It's not cheap, but relatively cheap compared to some other countries. And this is this is a kicker. A history of elitism from British landlords, says Simon. Uh, on down to modern day businessmen helps too because your society, say unlike China in the past, must accept that hu- a huge amount of land can be kept immaculate for a small amount of people. Yeah. So we've learned that we've been conditioned to think this way over hundreds of years, mm. and that's why we're okay with golf clubs. Well, it's very true. I mean, that's the history of Ireland. You know, read any any uh, diary of a visitor to Ireland from before about nineteen hundred, and they say the same thing. You know, the Lord walking on his beautifully manic- manicured park behind his high walls, while the plebs um, outside essentially stand by the side of the road because there's nothing else for them to do. That's we're this, the plebs. Any of us country. who are not members of golf clubs. Yeah, well, I think golf maybe has a bit of an image problem, actually. So an interesting thing the other day, uh, it was some 
piece about, you know, Tinder. Yeah. So basically, um, it was a kind of an analysis of, of what uh, Tinder profiles, um, or basically, they, they, they made up this kind of study where people kind of swipe through a lot of Tinder profiles and they were like... Oh, it's an online dating profile. So. Yeah. So, uh, and they were asked, you know, write the following pictures in terms of attractiveness and also... What do you think about this person? They were asked to kind of write them in a different categories. It was it was an attempt to sort of get to whether social class is a powerful influence on how people um, choose prospective hmm. partners for dating. Okay. Yeah. Now, one of the pictures in it was uh, was four guys uh, all in golf clothes and golf. Uh, you know, yeah. this was I. If I remember correctly, if it wasn't the most unpopular picture in the whole thing, mm-hmm. it was one of the least popular ones. And uh, the associations that this picture appeared to create in people were, number one, these people are rich. Yeah. And number two, they're conservative. And number three, they're probably Christians. Uh, that appears to... Now, of course, this was an American... Uh, yeah. American... Uh, well, isn't being rich, isn't that study. seen by some people as uh, an attractive... Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose it's it's always a it's always a plus point <laughs> if if most people are honest. But then again, maybe you can be a little bit too rich, you know. Yeah. Uh, if if they just appeared in civilian clothes without golf equipment, maybe people would thought, oh, you know, they look like uh, maybe I wouldn't have to pay for dinner. Fresh faced young go getters. Put, put on the golf gear and the golf clubs, and people think, oh, these guys, yeah. you know, these now they're not on the way up. They've already met it, and they're as a result. Unattractive. We're okay, starting with glory for Kerry at Croke Park. Ushi McConville and Anthony Moyles are here. Lads, how are you? How's things? Not too bad at all. Anthony. Good form on, yeah. Yeah, good form. Was it a terrible game yesterday? And if so, could it have been any other way? Um, I, don't, I don't think it was a terrible game. Well, okay, neutral, spectacle, all of that kind of stuff. You know, you'd say yes. Um, some of the standard of play wasn't great, um, but at the same time, if some of those kind of shots that say Kerry was were taken in some parts of the game had gone over, some people would say yeah it was a bit better. Um, look, finals are finals, you know they're cagey affairs. You know you think back to any other sport, be it FA cups, be it different things, they're always the same. You know, like I mean, it's you very rarely get a classic kind of final that just kind of comes out and both teams go at it. Sometimes it can be very one-sided, very lopsided, you know, and a team just gets blown out of it because one team freezes on the day, or you end up getting a kind of a tense, cagey affair like yesterday. You get it in hurling. Uh, maybe it's the one sport that does produce great <laughs> finals. Farrell just fell off his chair. I know, because yeah. th- this is what happens when there's a bad Gaelic football game is, uh, and vice versa, I think. There's this strange sort of rivalry between the, the, t- the two sports when everybody should be just good friends. But Ushin Kerry, uh, the point was made, has been made that Kerry maybe are forgiven this defensive game plan a little bit more than if an Ulster team had come to Crow Park and played as they did yesterday? Yeah, possibly. Uh, yesterday I was I was uh, I wasn't disappointed at half time, but I was disappointed when it was over because I thought the first half in most of the games this year that Kerry have played, they just sort of kept it pretty tight. Donegal do the same sort of thing, you know, they keep it tight and then they come out and play a little bit in the second half. Um, there was a lot of le- nerves floating about yesterday, but McGuinness hit the nail on the head after the game when he said that they were flat because they were you know when you look back at the performance they were flat they couldn't get Murphy into the game um, so forget your question well no the question <laughs> is just about whether or not uh, in Kerry's case yeah. that they're forgiven the, the fact yeah. that they went defensive because they've given us quite a lot over the years y- yeah and 
that's strange because if you're going to analyse the game, you, you analyse what's put in front of you. And when it was put in front of us yesterday, they were very well structured, uh, very well structured defensively, and it was based on the defensive system that they won the All Ireland yesterday. Um, usually, when we when we talked about Kerry in the past, it was free flowing football. Uh, when we watched them play Dublin last year in the semi final, was a game that people, you know, like to refer back to about how they played. Still played quite defensively that day. You know, well, they they played quite defensively in that they were they had a lot better structure about them than Dublin would have had. You know, they seemed to base a lot of their foundations on the Fitzmaurice on their uh, on their defence, and that has really worked for them. He's really worked at that. But people talk about defence and they talk about the back six and all. Uh, Kerry's back six played well yesterday. Um, they played quite well in the middle of the field, um, but. The tackling of the forwards was absolutely ferocious, and uh, they put serious pressure on Donegal coming out of the field. And in that middle third, uh, I think Anthony said it yesterday that he'd never seen Donegal turned over as much. And when you look back in the game, you know they were turned over a hell of a lot of times in that area where they like to build. Mm. So in order for them to get, McGinnis said that there wasn't enough energy, there wasn't enough runners. A lot of time. They were starting that run, and all of a sudden, they had to turn on the heel and go back. The major difference I found yesterday, just watching the match and trying to appreciate it as a spectacle, was that when uh, Donegal lost the ball, they run back towards their goals with, the back to the, with their back to the ball. Kerry boys didn't. They retreated back all right, but they were mindful of... I can get a hand in in the middle of the field. I can yeah. break this uh, attack down in the middle of the field. Let's try and get to the source of the ball and let's try and s- stop the momentum there. Uh, I, I seen McGuinness yesterday and he was quite frustrated a couple of times that Kerry sort of, you know, they weren't systematically fouling, but what they were doing was they were making it very difficult for Donegal to move that ball quickly. So when they weren't moving the ball quickly, give Kerry an opportunity to retreat back in, get a bit of structure about it. Because I think defensively, I still don't think that it sits that pretty with with the Kerry boys that they have to do this. But they realise that they have to do it in order to win games. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think um, a word that's been used quite a bit about Kerry in the last 24 hours and... Uh, particularly in the last 24 hours, but uh, over the course of the year, was this adaptability that you know that mm-hmm. they could go and they could uh, play two shootouts with Mayo uh, in the drawn game and replay the semi-final, and they could also play yesterday. There's actually probably more similarities in what you're saying and how they've played. Say, take the Dublin game as like the start, the real start of what yeah. we can see from Fitzmaurice uh, last year, and take it all the way through this year. Maybe it's not. There's not a massive amount of adaptability there, but they have um, within themselves the ability to say when a game is there for the taking to just go and kill it off, like they did against Cork this year. So they would have set up very defensively in the Munster final this year, but when they saw that the Cork challenge wasn't actually as good as it was, they just blew them out of the water. They were good enough. And I think that, that, that suggests to me that they're a very, very good side. Yeah, comfortable. Comfortable on the ball. Uh, they can play football <clears throat> from number two right out to fifteen. Mark O'Shea is as comfortable would be as comfortable at corner forward as he is at uh, at full back. That says a lot for him. He likes a, a young Murphy coming on, uh kicked a great score. Uh Peter Crowley didn't get a lot of credit for what he did yesterday, but he he just did a, a very good job as a sweeper. 
as a sweeper as we've known it over the last uh, number of years. He was able to double mark McFadden at times, but also had the wherewithal that if he seen trouble further out the field, that he was able to go on mm. and and you know and and. And, and stop that trouble as I say at source before they had an actual chance to build it that was actually a big thing you know because we, we spoke before and, and Murph alluded to we've all alluded to the fact that Donegal when they break now they like to break in pods but actually what they do is they actually get one or two fellas actually ahead of the ball so these guys just actually go running like McGrath Thompson they just run into the opposition's half Um Quite often, the idea is to pull a player away, you know, so a player actually has to go with him. So, but what I, I just watched, I watched it again last night, and Crowley from behind the goal, I watched him a few times. He actually was picking up guys as they were coming. So he'd see the danger. If he was in front of McFadden doubling up with O'Shea, he'd see the danger. He would go out to actually take that man. Once that man went out to the sideline, he then left him and then came back in. Very, very intelligent play. You know, most fellas would kind of stay out there and say, yeah. OK, I'll stick on him. He then said, OK, it's not going to him. I'll come back into the middle. And then he would actually go pick up another player. So where Ushin says Donegal was frustrated and McGuinness alluded to it yesterday, this thing of turnovers, Kerry said, OK, once you come into our, our field of play, we're going to pick those runners up and then we'll, we'll essentially make you kick into McFadden. And if you're not going to do it, because they actually didn't really do it. They only let one or two long balls into him. Um, and I thought where they let themselves down yesterday was they should have switched Murphy in a lot more and just left Murphy in at full forward. I would have taken McFadden out and then try Murphy and Aidan O'Mahony in at full back. That would have been a much better, I think, threat. But... Just to just to go back on the uh, on the the the, the Kerry play, um, the the adaptability thing. They're, they're smart players, right? And it's Kerry. You think of the 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 temptation when you have Donaghy in there for any other team in the country would it be to lamp ball in on top of him again and again and again. Okay, it didn't work. Well, we still and especially when they got that little bit of success, you know, throughout the first half, they might have thrown say one in every three balls, one in every four, but they didn't. They use it very very sparingly, um, and they only use it at the right time. And when they felt they had a break on or a turnover on, they looked then very quickly to. Is he on his own in there? And they look to try and get it in. And that's that's playing. It's brilliant play. While on you know in in the middle of eighty two thousand people, you know tackles going in to have that kind of sense of awareness. It wasn't even always Donahue in there. The the Gainey goal is quite telling. James O'Donoghue said afterwards that that was actually Donahue's idea. They talked about that in advance, and Donahue said, "Look, we'll, Paul Gainey's better in the air than people realize, and maybe yeah. that Donegal will realize. So why don't we just leave him in there at the start? Mm. <laughs> they get Donahue is, is also picking the tactics now. It turns out for well, I suppose the. the the key to that was they weren't sure 100% sure who's going to pick up who but they probably had a fair idea Aim McGee was going to be on Donaghy uh, Neil McGee was going to pick up O'Donoghue so that left Paddy McGrath yeah. or Frank McLean who sometimes can play in the corner but uh, they chose McGrath who's a much smaller man than Paul Gini is and uh, the, the actual ball that went into him uh, for the goal was I think was a shot from Stephen, mm. uh, Stephen O'Brien but they put another couple of balls in after that. Uh, Gini won one, sidestepped, and probably when I look back on that last night, it was actually closer than uh, yeah. to scoring a goal than when I, when, mm. I, when I watched it in real time. But uh, a tactic that you know you got to think outside the box a little bit. You got to think what's the opposition expecting us to do. Let's change that up a little bit. It's, it's, it sounds simple, but you know it's it's uh, it's it, yeah. Managers managers can sometimes. Fall in love with the idea that they've had, you know. That, yeah. You know, I've brought Donahue in there. It's not. Yeah. It's not even like he's been doing it all year. You know, basically they've had one game and ten minutes worth at the end of the first Mayo game where it's worked brilliantly. 
you know, why change it? Well, is that what yeah. McGuinness did? Did McGuinness fall in love with his own idea a little too much? Well, I think what. It, well, I think we said this <clears> last <throat> week. He was coming up against a manager who would out not outthink him, right? But who would say, "Okay, how am I going to take his weapons away?" And we spoke yesterday a little bit about the one thing Donegal loved. They love to see like. Let's take the Dublin game. They love to see you. Donegal love to see opposition try and run through them. They love to see you. If you get frustrated 50 yards out, well, then you're going to try to integrate, go through them with quick hand passes. Then they strip you and they get turnovers and they're gone in, in those pods and they catch you on the break. Kerry never allowed that yesterday. Kerry, Kerry were kind of... It was funny, you know, they were like a shark. They were just on out, outside the 50, just kind of saying, probing, flicking another pass, kicking a crossfield ball. Then, and then, yeah, they wasted a couple of bad shots. Like Buckley kicked a, f- a, few, a few terrible wides. They, they, they kicked some bad shots, some bad selection. But the, what they were saying was, we're not going to go in there. We're just not going to give you the opportunity to strip us and then actually break up yeah. the field. And then if it didn't work out to get a shot, well, then they said, well, just kick it into Donaghy. And, OK, Neil McGee got the break and out they come. But we're already set back here. We're ready for you now to come out. You take Dublin in the second half when they got a bit frustrated and went behind. What did they try to do? Tried to go through Donegal. The amount of times they were turned over. You know, fellas flicking hand passes. Next thing, Donegal, the crowd love it. Big roar. And sure, it's such a fill-up. You know, when you haven't got that as a defender, um, it, 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 it takes one of his major, major, major assets away. Did Fitzmaurice have an advantage in all of this in getting to see the second semi-final live? I saw he said after the match that whoever he was there with, presumably one of his selectors, we drove back and after the four hours driving, we knew exactly what we were going to do. McGuinness just wouldn't have had that. I'm sure he had people watching the game and he would have watched it a million times himself on TV. Am I stretching a little bit there? No, I don't think you're stretching it, but I I do want to make the point that I'm not sure McGuinness did that much wrong yesterday. Um, I think... Uh, personnel-wise, it would be definitely you could pick holes in the fact that he didn't start McBrady because McBrady looked really sharp. Mm, I thought when he job. come onto the field. Uh, then the other argument is you need somebody to come on and make an impact. So if you if you start McBrady, does O'Connor? We haven't seen that impact either yeah. from McBrady when he started. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have been yeah. when he came on. But the flip side of that, Morph, is that if you bring O'Connor on, I don't know if he gives you the same lift as what. Uh, McBrady does off the bench. He just comes on and uh, Walsh is the same sort of player as well that he's yeah. probably not going to give you that oomph. Uh, even Rory Kavanagh, he's not going to give you that. You don't get, you're not going to get really excited to see Rory Kavanagh. You know he's going to do a good job for you. But see, I think that's the thing about McGuinness is I don't think, apart from that, that he did that much wrong. I mean, So you don't think that he... But to use Merce's phrase, potentially was too much in love with his own game plan and maybe a little bit inflexible. No, because he did change it yesterday. He did change it slightly in that I'm still not 100% sure what Lacey's role was, but I'm I'm almost uh, sure that Lacey was basically an extra attacker. He didn't have any defensive duties yesterday, or if he did, he didn't carry them out. He, he he hung around the middle of the field and he was always going on the opposite side of the field. He was always looking for that crossfield ball. He got frustrated a couple of times the boys didn't have the vision to pick him out. Uh, he got on a couple of balls. He got in two towards the end of the first half. He kicked a point and then he kicked. A, he actually kicked a bad wide after that. But uh, <clears throat> So McGuinness tried to get him free. McGuinness thought that he was going to be his ace attacker. Didn't work out like that. But he tra- he, at least he tried something just slightly different. He's... McGuinness is only ever going to tweak it a little bit. Yeah, you know yeah. he's he's going to he's going to he's going to stick with the principles that have got that have done him so so well for, or that have uh, paid him so well for so long. Uh, he, st- he sticks to them and he tweaks it down a little bit. He sees a w- he sees a weakness or even a strength. Uh, 
in the opposition and he tries to go for that juggler. You heard Mark Mark McHugh talking about it. I thought that was a good insight into into McGuinness. But one thing he wanted to do, he seemed to want to get Lacey on the ball going forward. And they were able to do it twice or, or three times in the game. But I imagine that when they, he set that out, he thought we could get him on the ball 10, 12 times. I think his major fallback yesterday, um, and, and, and as Usher says, he's done very, very little wrong, was, was, was the use of McFadden. You know, McFadden hasn't had a great year, even the Dublin game. It wasn't, it wasn't a fantastic performance by him. Um, he's, been, he's been carried a little bit. Um, and yesterday, O'Shea was, was very comfortable with him in there, you know, and he was leading the line a lot in there on his own. And what he actually did to do, like, okay, if you want to leave him on because he is a big time player and he can come up with a big score for you, and he very nearly did at the very end, right, with the, with the fisted shot. Um, but I definitely would have, I would have said to myself, look, they're probably going to earmark Murphy. They're going to put probably, like everyone was kind of saying, O'Mahony will go on. And Aidan O'Mahony is not going to shirk away from that, right? So people were saying it was borderline, there was a bit of stuff going on off the ball. Look, that's an All-Ireland final. You know, you get away with it, you get away with it. That's the way I would say. Um, and you do what, what needs to be done. Murphy's a big boy, he should have been able to handle himself. And I would have, if I saw this by Jim McGuinness or even anticipated, I'd say, OK, you know what, I'm going to put Aidan O'Mahony in the square and see how he handles it see how he handles one or two big balls coming in because that would have been a different story and then take McFadden out bring McFadden out bring and bring O'Connor would have been out obviously at that stage and McBrarty and then just leave Murphy in there and fire one or two that's, that's something Kerry I don't think would have expected because Kerry would have expected Murphy to be out around the middle yeah. trying to generate ball and get involved and he was you could see Murphy he was trying to get involved he was trying to and every time he went he got a bit of a dunt or he, or he came into traffic um, so that's that was something where I think he probably could have worked. Yeah, it out funnily enough. Better. Yeah, funnily enough, I would have said that Kerry might have expected it and would have feared it. You know that idea of Murphy in there completely by himself with yeah. Aidan O'Mahony, and I think that you know if if they had tried that, there's even a chance that you might have seen Anthony Maher back on Michael Murphy for those five minutes while he's mm. back there. As it turns out, we didn't actually see that happen. But I mean, that was certainly the the talk that if you had McFadden, if if Murphy was in there all by himself. That Kerry would have had to change. They would have had to change O'Mahony off him. As it turns out, I thought Aidan O'Mahony was nearly man of the match yesterday. Yeah, and they definitely would have pulled Crowley back. You know, they would have they would have tried to protect yeah. it. They would have had to protect it a lot more. But actually, as I said to you, they, they didn't seem to. They actually left Mark O'Shea and they said, "Look, you're on your own. Don't worry about us." You know, they actually were confident enough uh, of with his one on one with McFadden to leave McFadden uh, there for, for seventy minutes. Uh, one thing that that I, as a corner forward. I, you know, I was actually, you know, I would have been told this from a very early age is that um, if you're not getting on the ball and the ball's not coming in, go out and get a ball. Even if it's only getting on the ball, giving a simple hand pass, it's just you get yourself into the game in some way. Or he had no touches whatsoever. He had no touches whatsoever in the first half. I think he, he kicked a, he kicked a, tor- yeah, and he kicked a 13 metre free kick. Maybe he's, you think that's going to get him into the game but he had no other major involvement but that may know, be yeah it might be indicative of, of the mindset more so and as you say you wouldn't lay too much blame on McGuinness's door although I suppose it is his job to get the players right yeah. mentally and that's one of his that's his greatest strength yeah. probably whatever about all the systems and uh, you flagged it up from Thursday that you were a bit worried by this talk of, of Donegal having to Almost having to convince themselves that Kerry mm. we're going to be we're going to be top, and maybe you can sometimes convince yourself the other team's a little too good because McGuinness himself looked he didn't really have an answer as to why they were so flat. Yeah, and the, uh, the simple reason why they were so flat is that they got so 
intense. Yeah, yeah, they got so high for the for for the Dublin game. It seemed to me as it, like they they looked different yesterday. They looked so focused against Dublin. You could see it almost in their eyes. And it's easy saying that now. It is easy saying it. But even at half time yesterday, you knew there was something a little bit different about Donegal. You knew they just weren't quite right. Having said that. At that stage, I thought this is panning out lovely because it was the atmosphere was 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 uh, dull enough uh, in the first half. Um, you know, Kerry was starting to unravel a little bit towards the end of the first half. Uh, Donegal were coming into it nicely. Six all at half time. You're thinking this is a game that Donegal invariably w- mm-hmm. you know win. They kick a point towards the end of the game and win this. They look the Dublin game. They looked like a team who who had the game plan. And they knew 100% that it would work. Yesterday, they looked like a team who had a game plan. They were kind of going, yeah, we're not really 100% sure of this game plan either. Do you know? And they were, I think they did have one eye on Kerry. Whereas with Dublin, they didn't have an eye, an eye on Dublin. They just said, they're going to do this. You know, they're going to fall into this. Like I remember they, they talked about McGuinness before a Cork game a couple of years ago. And, and the players couldn't believe that McGuinness actually, he said, this is what Cork are going to do. And after they were kind of going, wow. He, they did it exactly <laughs> as he picked out and I'd say if you were to ask him after the Dublin game was it exactly like you said yeah. I'd say it was now I'd say if they were to say what exactly did you think Kerry were going to do I'd say they were going mm. because they just have, Kerry probably have a few more weapons you know and I, I think that's a, like that's a really interesting point in that Fitzmaurice's uh, own tactical now perhaps led to McGuinness saying right he could do this yeah yeah. But there's also a chance that Kerry could do that. And when it, came, when it came to Dublin, there was none of that. He said, this is how Dublin are going to play. And, you know, even, you know, we could have sat around this table and said, this is how Dublin yeah. are going to play. And, Jim, Ga- bit, and yeah. Jim Gavin would say, because, but, but, but that's been Gavin's philosophy. Look, this is the way we play and it has worked for us. Uh, and he makes no bones about it, you know. Um, and, and you have to sometimes admire the fact that he says, we're going to go out and do this. Uh, and sure, you know, try to stick with us. Um, but as we said last week, I'd say Jim Gavin might be slightly adapting things for next year. Yeah, the man of the match went to Paul Murphy, uh, which I I don't know if he would have been everybody's choice. But is that indicative of the season that Kerry have had? That a guy who would have been happy enough to be on a panel at the start of the year, off the panel last year, yeah, yeah. is is maybe you know a couple of championship games here and there. We might have been happy enough with ends up being man of the match in the All Ireland final. Yeah, and I suppose the fact that he's twelve as well um, <laughs> that <laughs> really adds to the achievement. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, how many twelve-year-olds really have we seen <laughs> win man of the match? Very few. When you think about it, you know, very few. It's all it's been. That's all it's been. All about the new guys, I suppose, this year. Even you know, an extra time. I think I said the last day about given. Uh, Boys who we haven't seen that much of, giving them the head and saying, "You, I'm tr- entrusting you boys to get us over the line." You know, we wasn't bringing an old head off the mm. bench to say, "Look, we need a bit of experience here." He's bringing on Jonathan Lane, kicked a couple of points. Patrick Kenny, who got in the ball, uh, time after time after time. Uh, Paul Murphy yesterday entrusted in a few. Fitzgerald has had a decent year as well. Um, just all over the field, you know, those young lads, you know, all stepped up. I, again, I'm repeating myself, but. They're sort of finding a new identity for themselves. Um, they're not that uh, physically powerful, um, especially defensively. You know, and you thought they would have been overpowered yesterday, but by by absolutely no means. Were Which they is interesting in and of itself. In that maybe two or three years ago, everyone was talking about the physical power and Dublin being one of those teams. Donegal, big side as well. 
whereas Kerry come along and show that you don't have to necessarily do it. Smart, being the smartest team is maybe still the best way of winning in All-Ireland. Yeah, yeah, smart is definitely the way. The, the pen is measuring and the sword and all that kind of crack. I, I, what I felt was yesterday, but really you only saw major aggression from Donegal even those last few minutes. Like the time Murphy, when he actually just threw three players out of his way, there was, there was, it was... It, Donegal, and, and this is back to the point of where they absolutely 100% up to the mark, and you would say aggression-wise they weren't, you mm. know. Like any of the kind of bullying that was going on yesterday was being yeah. done by Kerry. Uh, Donegal weren't doing the bullying yesterday. And that's, and that's again, uh, indicative of a situation where they go into the game a little bit unsure of themselves, you know. Like, I mean, if you go to, look, lads, these are a bunch of young lads. You're going to absolutely, one of them t- knocks into you. Because I saw there was a few little cameos around the field where there was one especially where Murphy, uh, the ball was on the far end of the field, was down the, the, and Murphy, I think, hit into O'Mahony. And three Kerry fellas left yeah. their players and came over to him and started hitting into him. Um, and the, the only lad that came in from Donegal was young O'Connor. And kind of Mark Shade looked at him and just kind of pushed him away like this and didn't, you know, kind of said, I'm not even going to bother with you. So, so, but what I'm saying, there was Murphy was on his own. He was being knocked around like a skittle, you know, and I was kind of saying to myself, oh, that's a real marker being set down. Yeah. Uh, just before we wrap things up, Ushin, I think that was uh, the All Ireland final was the second biggest GA story over the After weekend. After Spygate, right? Uh, well, no, that maybe maybe the the third biggest. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been probably one of the great weeks. Tell for us what happened GA journalism uh, between your team Cross McLean and Drummond T at the weekend. Well, we know what happened. A bunch of the opponents were turned up wearing, wearing jeans, wearing jeans to take on the greatest club team of all time. Well, I give you the official word on it. Okay, um, <laughs> the official word on it was that we're down to play. It. A championship match in the Atlantic Grounds on Friday night at 8 o'clock. So we go through our normal routine. We meet at half five. We go to do a warm up. We arrive at the pitch. We're back out onto the pitch as, as early as we can 25 to 8, getting a bit of warm up done, trying to build up the intensity. <laughs> and, uh, it's going to be a war out at, here, lad. At 20 to 8, uh, Drummond T arrive onto the pitch. Not the Drummond T that we were expecting because it was. Over four, an over forties team. Somebody's wearing jeans. Um, if I can fast forward on to the yeah. actual uh, the, the throwing in of the ball, they said they told us before the game that they wouldn't be challenging for any ball for any balls, and that their senior team had let them down that, uh, as a club. That they were um, they were attending a wedding, and that they told they had informed the club that they wouldn't be there. So the club took action and decided that they would turn up with a team because they otherwise they would have got suspended for six months to a year. And these were the fathers of a lot of juvenile players who didn't want their sons missing out on football for the following uh, 12 months. Fast forward on the game, the ball's thrown in. Uh, I'm standing on the sideline and there's a fella in, in, in a pair of jeans, which, which sort of at that stage, we had 20 minutes to sort of get our heads around that. We weren't sure, quite sure what way the game was going to develop, but uh, I found I took a call uh, on the side. He was marking Aaron Kernan. Uh, I could hear his phone ringing. <laughs> he takes his phone out of his pocket. He, he answers it, and uh, the conversation went on. I'll tell you it word for word. Was uh, uh, yeah? Is that two pallets? Yeah. I, <laughs> I should be able to get that. To, I should be able to get that. To, I should be able to get that to you tomorrow. Dalu, uh, listen, I'm just at a match here, uh, and he put down his phone. Um, so we scored a couple of points. Um, we scored a couple of points. We got a goal and a couple of points, and we decided 
what are we going to get out of this game? Obviously, not a big lot. Um, did Aaron Kieran take the opportunity to go up the field at that stage? Or did he? <laughs> he didn't bother. Uh, he was the most disgusted of all. Said that, you know, if your marker takes a phone call, <laughs> yeah, that's your that's time your to really bother. You got to go. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's it is. It's I'm laughing now. Thank God. But I, I ha- this is the first time I've laughed about it. So thanks for the therapy. No, uh, that's all right. Yeah. We just decided to train. We took the boys down into the corner and we run lens of the field for the as rest the match of the was year. ongoing. Yeah. So you just had to kick enough scores to make sure the victory We just kicked enough scores and they just kicked the ball around with each other. And unfortunately, at one stage, the ball went out of play in the, f- the far corner where we were training. And uh, Aaron Cairn had to run the full length of the field to kick it back into them so that they could pass around. So at that stage, I shouted on the field that if they could just fist the ball rather than kick it because we were trying to get on with the training session. But that sort of way it happened. Uh, an absolute farce, an embarrassment. I was embarrassed, and it was nothing. You know, it was nothing we could have done about it. But I was embarrassed for just—I don't—I was embarrassed for myself even being there. Uh, this was a championship game. We should. This was a championship out. game, and you know, quarterfinal. The details, yeah, the quarterfinal. So yeah. we sort of we we were, we're heading in. We've played. We well, we haven't actually played many games. We've played three games, but none of them were worth uh, anything to us. So going into the semi-final, completely undercooked and underprepared. Yeah. So. But it's good to good that you can probably laugh a little bit. Underdogs for the Armagh Championship. <laughs> Basically, what you're saying here, Richie. But I'm glad we could be of help. Um, Thanks to to have you get over that one. Great to talk Do to I you. Do I owe you? Do I owe you? We'll discuss. We'll first discuss one's free, you yeah, can get off the couch now. Yeah. Anthony Brady, next million. Cheers. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, aestheticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Well, that was nice. Oshin was able to talk to us in a, a measured, reason yeah. way. He could see the absurdity of what had happened, and he was able to put somewhere towards the back of his mind the, the nagging fear that. This is really bad preparation for their semi-final. But the, la- the lad answering is... Aaron Kern, and I would not imagine, and Oshin hinted at it there, was not hugely impressed with having to <laughs> having his marker answer a phone call during... No, no. I mean, I think, I think that that's, that kind of goes... I mean, if you're there, you know, if you're wearing the jersey, you know, I would, I would have said, put a pair of shorts on. You know, it would take the really bad visual element of it out of it at least. I mean, if you're wearing jeans, that's bad. But if you're answering phone calls... Like doing business effectively, trying to sell some, you know, pallets of pallets something or of diesel or something. I don't know. I mean, if that's what you're doing, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's probably a little bit too far. Would you say airplane? Would you accept airplane mode or just knock the phone off altogether if you're playing? I would, against say, I would say give the phone to your, uh, your uh, loved one. Yeah, because if it's an emergency, then at least you can come off the field and deal with it. Exactly. Just, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to, you know, uh, miss you too much. I mean, you're wearing a pair of jeans standing on a football field. No one's going to miss you if you slope off for five minutes to take a call. But, I mean, to actually have it out on the pitch, I think that's just... The bigger issue is, at what age is it reasonable for a man to give up on the dream and actually just stop wearing jeans? Yeah, that, that is a... I mean, these guys are... I thought you were going to say, say stop 50s. playing senior football. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, they're just, a, just the, the wearing of the jeans is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, jeans are, are meant to... Um, are kind of meant to discriminate against old people, aren't they? The shape, the fit. It's the whole I mean, point. My, I, it's the whole point of jeans is that old people can't wear them without look, looking ridiculous. Yeah, my, my, I, I can never remember my father wearing a pair of jeans. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's that's so I, I can remember when he was forty, certainly forty. 
I mean, I think I like if you said to me now, I have to stop wearing jeans when I reach forty, I'd probably be a little upset with that. Yeah. But certainly, forty-five. I mean, at that stage, what are you saying? That's it. The dream's dead. Well, uh, it's it is it's a thorny. It's a thorny subject. Thorny. I mean, it has to do, I suppose, with the um, with the death of adulthood. You know, often a theme that you frequently come across in uh, online think pieces. Uh, the uh, the refusal of us of of so many of us these days to just simply go ahead and grow up. You know what's wrong with being an adult? Why does everyone want to be young all the time? What's wrong with aging gracefully? When does an opinion piece become a think piece? Ah, oh, no, no, we've gone too far here. We've got to move on because it's a huge weekend in the Premier League, and we're going to talk about it in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield. I'm going to see them. What are you doing down here? You're man. A lot of incredible games down over the weekend. It's difficult to know which ones we're going to talk about. But I think the Leicester Man United game is definitely one that qualifies. And you'll have to tune in later to find out what the other one is. I don't want to give it all away. But we will talk about all the games at some point. I mean, we do actually know what you're going to be talking about. I'm trying to forward sell. Well, yeah, but I mean, how would you... F- you don't want to alienate, say... We'll, we'll, end up, we'll discuss them. You've got your report on sport. They're so all going to be... There. We've got, we've they're got all going to be there. Contributors, we're going to talk about... And Frank Lampard. I think we're going to talk a lot about Frank Lampard. Stoic Frank Lampard. Um, he's a handsome man. He's a caring, sensitive, generous, very wealthy. Uh, but not... Well, I don't know if he plays golf. Um, but look, we will, uh, we're will. we going to talk a lot about... Can Lampard. you talk to us a little bit now about Leicester, Manchester United? Um, and what you <laughs> made of that good Well, match. I thought it was just one of the best games I've seen in so long. I mean, it wasn't just that it had this incredible last half hour when Leicester scored four goals, I mean, which was stunning. Literally, no, nothing like that has happened to Manchester United since... Well, since the December 1984, actually. Um, but certainly not never in the Premier League era have they lost after being two goals ahead. Um, so that was quite something, really. Um, but it was more that just the game was, from the first minute, it was just a really fascinating game to watch. There was always something happening. It had a lot to do with the fact that Leicester kept trying to take the game to Manchester United. Instead of doing the usual thing, whereby they're being really cautious and they're only going to attack with maybe two players if they get the ball, uh, and they're you know, just trying to focus on not making mistakes. And then once they concede, you can see everybody giving up. They kept going, and uh, and you know, United couldn't handle it; couldn't stand up to it. Um, <laughs> it was just some. I mean, Esteban Cambiaso, Esteban Cambiaso scored the equalising goal for Leicester. What is he? You know, what, yeah. what's happening there? The fans have this great Esteban Cambiaso song, which was uh, which they were singing for much of the second half. The guy uh, Jamie Vardy, who was ultimately man of the match, is one of the one of the most entertaining characters I've seen in a, a Premier League field for some time. He puts himself about that. that he really does. Um, there was a lot of stuff. There was refereeing disasters. There was Wayne Rooney having an absolute meltdown. Um, there was. Really, absolutely everything in the game. It was incredible. Uh, well, yeah. if you're and if you've mentioned golf there, I hope you get time to mention Teddy Sheringham 
uh, being the happiest man on the planet sitting beside Rory I've McElroy. literally never seen and any human well, being glowing yeah. more with happiness. <laughs> this is on Goals on Sunday. McElroy Rory McIlroy was on Goals on Sunday and Teddy Sheringham was sitting next to him and honestly it was he was pleased as punch Owen. he really was. I, what was he so happy about? I have no idea. It was really, really funny. He was I'm, just beaming. Yeah, it was like, quite, quite odd. The biggest he... I think Teddy Sheringham must really, really like golf. Like a lot. Yeah, he really does. Because I've I've never seen anyone so happy to be in the presence of another person. Let's talk golf now. If you're a fan of a good sports documentary, I'm guessing you probably are. The story of Irish golf is going to be told over three nights this week on Satanta Ireland, Tuesday to Thursday. It's called From Tea to Green. And the movie's director, Andrew Gallimore, joins us in studio. Andrew, you're very welcome in. Thanks for having me. We've had you in a couple of times over the years. Um, large, well, certainly on, on one or two occasions to talk to you about boxing documentaries that you've done. Um, in many, in, well, in some ways, you couldn't get very different sports uh, than boxing and golf. Is this necessarily, is a very different feel to this one compared to those? It's a different feel in, in kind of some ways. Obviously, aesthetically, it's very different. I mean, uh, the, the, the great links courses of Ireland have, couldn't get more different to sort of uh, downtown amateur boxing gyms, you know. But uh, in some ways it's different. In some ways it's, it's kind of the same story as well. It, it's a sports story, but it kind of has so much going on behind it. And I think that was kind of the fascinating thing about the golf series because obviously when we were discussing making this in the first place, this was the you know, in the middle of this extraordinary run of Irish guys winning major titles. And it, it's extraordinary. Nothing happens without a reason, you know. I mean, yes, you can have four or five outstanding players come together at the same time. But this is, what, now nine major championships in seven years. There has to be a reason. And I think that was probably the spur for the series, really. Did you find one particular reason? Um, th- there are several. I mean, and, and I think that that's kind of... I mean, the closest I could think of before starting off was something like, you know, Celtic winning the European Cup back in the 60s with, like, 11 or 12 players from a 22-mile radius. And I think the level of the achievement is 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 very comparable. And so... You look at it, though, but golf is fascinating because it, it has so many layers in Ireland. You, you can start even with the geography and the geology. I mean, it's perfect to make golf courses. Uh, and then there's the, the whole kind of the political situation, the economic situation, and the way sort of memberships, I suppose, of golf clubs reflect what's gone on in the country over the past century. So, so what, has, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the... Well, I mean, you know, golf arrives in Ireland as like a unionist game. This is a game brought over by... Uh, Scottish insurance brokers, businessmen, bankers, um, and the the British military. So, you know, you couldn't have a more kind of non-Irish beginning to the game. Yet, it's fascinating the way it kind of evolves, the the way that it it, it avoids, for example, the foreign games ban. Um, You know, because, I mean, despite being, you could argue, a much more unionist game maybe than rugby or cricket ever were, um, golf escapes that. You know, and, and it kind of it mirrors the way I think Irish society changes. You have, you know, the, the, the new sort of middle classes emerging during the sort of establishment of the free state, the civil service. And it, it's just fascinating. And, and, and now you have a situation where you could argue that, that Irish golf is almost kind of, you know, the most sort of working class representation of golf that there is. Worldwide, absolutely. I mean, you know, these are this is an island where every single course is open to the public. For example, now you know the notion that you'd go to somewhere like the states 
and decide that you'd fancy playing X, Y and Z golf course. It just wouldn't happen. We do still have a situation in Port Marnock, as far as I know, where they don't admit full uh, uh, full members, full female members. Um, even the Royal Nation in St Andrews uh, is turning around on that one at the moment. That's something touched on, but uh, the, the elitism at times is something touched on, but uh, you don't, I don't think you explore it in any great depth. Well, I think the you know the, the women's game is an interesting uh, dimension to Irish golf anyway, because, I mean, again, one of the things certainly I didn't know before we started was that this is the first women's golf organization in the world, the Ladies PJ in Ireland. Um, now, obviously, you know, the, the Port Marnock situation is an interesting one. And, uh, you know, nobody stops anybody playing there. But clearly the membership issue is, is an issue. The uh, feel of this movie, Andrew, I, I watched the Ken Burns documentary Baseball a number of years ago. It's, I think it's got a running time of about 1,200 minutes or something like that. So uh, it's, it's never going to be quite the, the scope of that in terms of... But we were heading there at one stage. Were you? Yeah, <laughs> eventually the editing had to get a bit more ruthless, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but the feel of that, I, I, I was quite struck by your documentary, just in the sense that there's almost a feeling watching this as there was when I watched baseball of just such a relaxing mood around it. I don't know if that's something that you particularly went for, that you're just sitting there and you're thinking... You're, you're not. You're nice and chilled out. It's evocative, but it's also it, it, it lulls you in in that kind of a way. Um, maybe I, I don't think it was actually uh, a deliberate thing. I mean, it's. Uh, I think the the images themselves, I suppose, lend themselves to that. I mean, what we wanted to do, and we were very fortunate with the weather, but we wanted to just show the island's golf courses at their absolute finest, and and we we got some great weather, and it, it, it looks very nice. So then you've got that. You've got uh, Aidan Quinn, obviously, doing the narration. So he kind of. I suppose maybe it was his voice that lulled me. I, I, I don't know. I, was I, I think it probably, yeah, it probably yeah. is actually. Yeah, and, uh, and and there's a lovely score as well by Dennis Closey behind it. So I think I'm not sure whether it was a deliberate attempt to do that. Uh, and there were certainly times where I felt, you know, that if we don't speed the cutting up a tad, we are going to get a Ken Burns like epic. But uh, no, in the end, I think that that was the overall feel. Certainly, that archive footage that you touch on there is some stunning stuff. And going back to the 1800s was was a lot of fun to look through some of that. Amazing. I mean, the, the, the sort of the archive project almost had a sort of a life of its own outside the, the series itself. It was, it was a case of the more we found, the more opportunities there were to find other material. And so the thing almost grew exponentially. We were finding film collections from, you know, private collectors who said, and so-and-so has even more than I do. And then so-and-so would have even more than the, the last person. And it just kept growing. And, uh, in the end, we almost, I mean, I think that's, this is certainly the first project I've been involved with where we had to say stop, that there's not almost just too much material right. here, you know. Uh, it, it's beautiful. And, of course, the other thing is it's shot on film, so it looks spectacular. And so we, we got it telecined and restored, and it looks amazing. One of the points that you make is that, and you talked there about the geography of the, the country and how suited Ireland has been to golf and was from the very start, is that golf courses take ownership of the land, but largely they've done it in a way that maybe preserves them. Once the golf courses were put in some of these places in the late 1800s, that maybe stopped them from becoming something else that they could have become. Yeah, I, you see, the, the thing is, that the geography is, is fascinating, and, and it's to do with Link's golf. I mean, this is where golf begins, but it begins by the seaside for, for a, a good reason, which I certainly didn't know beforehand. And that is, of course, that back in the, what would have been the 1850s when the first big Scottish courses were built, you didn't have, you know, petrol-driven lawnmowers. And so how do you keep the grass low? And Lynx land naturally has lower grass, and that's why the game starts there. And so 
when you have an island like this, you know, it, it, it's, you know, the, some of the dunes that, that, you know, form courses like Waterville, for example, these are the same dunes, clearly, that, that you know, the guys in the 1890s played on. Yeah, I mean, I actually drove past La Hinch and Waterville over the course of my summer holidays today, and they're two towns that, for better or worse, have a kind of uh, seaside holiday feel, and maybe it's it's not as pretty as it could have been, but the golf courses actually really enhance how the two towns look, and that's replicated in loads of towns across sort of the, the Atlantic coast, and I think that's kind of, it's an interesting idea that the golf course isn't itself, without playing it, merely enhances the, the beauty of the landscape of the of those towns. But, the, you know, La Hinch is a great example. I mean, La Hinch is kind of a seaside town because of the golf course. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it's the railways that, that bring golf to La Hinch, and then it's it's the golf that brings the hotel and then, you know, the local businesses, and it transforms the village. That's kind of the fascinating thing about it is that often in these places, the golf course almost comes first. It's, it's really interesting. You mentioned the... The way it opened up, and maybe the way that uh, golf can, is representative in some ways of the way society went over the 100, 150 years. Maybe even more recently, there was such a boom in golf course design, in, in the building of golf course about 10 years ago. Uh, they, some of them are maybe struggling quite a bit more now. But now that the good times are back again, Andrew, um, are we going to see another two or 400 golf courses created? I don't think there'll be another two or four hundred golf courses created. I think um, the building of golf courses might be one of the permanent lessons <laughs> from yeah. uh, from the demise one of the, of the few economy. Permanent, uh, permanent <laughs> but um, I mean, certainly there won't be uh, a shortage of golf courses available for people to rejoin in better times. Have there been many? Uh, we talked about the positive uh, aspects of, of golf courses, but we shouldn't gloss over the fact that there there have been protests over the years about golf courses taking and golf clubs uh, sometimes seen as elite. Uh, taking over these pieces of land is that something that you've you found much of? Yeah, I mean, the, the the most obvious example, and you know, it, it's almost sort of the most staggering example, almost in world golf. Of course, is the old Hedekin Sale. I mean, and and it, it it's it's very much a sort of um, an icon, I think, for what what went on because I mean, it seemed like these courses got ever more ambitious, ever more extravagant, and of mm. course, the the old head is is extraordinary. It, it's it's basically perched into the Atlantic, you know, and it, it's completely unsuitable, really, to build a golf course on. Yet, I think, I'm, I'm saying that they eventually solved the problem of how to get grass, fairway and green grass, to grow on, on the old head. They had to go to the South Island of New Zealand, to Mount Stewart Island, to find a species hardy enough to, to grow there. That's the lengths to which people went to. That was the subject of quite a big environmental protest, uh, the old head, and um, a lot of kind of interesting things. But I mean, it's it now stands, of course, on on any brochure you'll see about Irish golf. There's this iconic rock in the middle of the ocean. It's the old head of Kinsale. The Irish golf story current brings us up currently to Rory McIlroy and where he's at as a transcendental figure in the game. Really, from everything you've looked at, Andrew, was it always natural that we would eventually produce a Rory McIlroy from this island, or is he just a total freak, um, talented kind of guy who could have come from anywhere? He created a lot of problems for us during the summer because he kept on winning major tournaments <laughs> just as we were finishing just the series. Just to change that story a little but, bit more. But um, he is uh, exceptional. I mean, you know, you have to sort of look at the story uh, and, and the way things evolve and you look at the way that, you know, that the McGinleys and these people started it all off. Then you have Harrington, obviously, the, you know, winning the first major for 60 years. I mean, they're all kind of part of a continuum, I suppose, 
But I think it's more difficult to place McElroy within that. I mean, he is just such, such an outstanding sportsman and, and nobody can really hazard a guess at where that story is going to go, yeah. really. And uh, so he's exceptional. I mean, I th- as you know, I started off by saying that, you know, there's, there's always a reason behind these things, you know, like like the Celtic story. But but he's outside that. Well, there might be a part four of the documentary at some, some stage, but the, <laughs> the three parts are ready to go. They're on Satanta Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. At the, it's 9 p.m. on Tuesday is the first one. People want to get a look at that and then take it from there, I suppose. That's on uh, tomorrow, Tuesday. Listen, Andrew Gallimore, thanks so much from T Degree and the story of Irish golf is the name of the movie. And well done. Cheers for talking to us. Thanks for having me. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler is here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. One aspect of the story of Irish golf there that we didn't cover, quite a few aspects we didn't cover, it's a three-part documentary, but the American dollar that started arriving in, the American tourists that started arriving in. I don't know if you've ever seen Shell's Wonderful World of Golf, if it pops up on TV every now and again, probably quite often, but it seems to be pierced into my subconscious somewhere. Yeah, no, it's, it's an extremely strange television show that usually holds my attention for about three to well, five it t- it minutes. A lot of Ray Floyd for some reason. It seems to just show, show a random... Now, maybe there's more to it than this, but anytime I've seen it, it's just a random tournament in Europe or America. Not not a major, um, often not a very big USPGA Tour event, and it'll just show no, you the entire... I, th- I, th- I think it was uh, an event uh, played specifically for oh, that's the television series. So there's only, <sighs> four, there's okay. only four golfers invited to some exotic locale, exotic or not. Uh, often Ray Floyd. Tom Kite often appears to be involved in these... Uh, wonderful world of golf events as well but okay. it goes all the way back to the 1960s Arnold Palmer all the rest of yeah, that yeah because it came to Killarney at one stage which is where uh, the, the, probably the moment that a lot of Americans first saw the beauty and uh, in Irish golf and mm-hmm. the potential in a, a little trip to spend some of their daughters here yeah I mean uh, uh, I would not underestimate how much money these exceedingly rich uh, unattractive to Tinder users <laughs> uh, U.S. golfer, golfing fans spend in, in Ireland. Sixteen million uh, people watch that particular. Tinder, Tinder may not we Tinder may not be kind to them, but we should be kind to them always. For all the wealthy golfers out there, I can only apologise for the slurs that you received um, to your good name today. And I'm sure if you are single and on Tinder, you'll get there. Yeah, you, you will get there. Probably better to try and meet a prospective wife down the clubhouse, though. We've got our football show out later today. That's it from this one. Hope you've enjoyed the golf and all the All-Ireland football. If that's not enough Second Captains related talk for you, get onto our website, secondcaptains.com, and have a snoop around there. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. We will talk to you again a little bit later on today. Um, Thanks. I'm going to thank you first, Ken. Thank you too, Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.